Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 25 through 30. And I invite you to stand up if you can. I have I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and your minister to my need. For he has been long for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Oh, indeed, he was ill, near to death. Oh, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So I'm the more eager to send him. Therefore, you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete was what was lacking in your service to me. Please be seated. Yes, Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of preaching and the gift of listening. You have opened our ears to hear your voice. So help us. Help me. Help the congregation. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Amen. Who are your heroes? Do you have any heroes? You may say, no, I'm too old for that. I don't have any heroes. Who were your heroes when you were young? I remember when I was a little boy, back in the day, you had posters, right? I don't know, in the U.S., of course, all the posters were coming from the U.S. to Brazil. Rocky. Rocky Balboa. <laughs> Rambo. Tarzan. Yeah. So, those were heroes. They would be looking at. And your heroes speak much about your heart. Who your heroes are, tell others what you aspire, what your heart longs for. And as we think about biblical heroes, the Bible is filled with biblical heroes. Very famous ones, right? Abraham, Noah, Joseph, David, Samuel. We name our children after them. Hannah. Sarah, Ruth, Naomi, Mary. Those are famous heroes. And then you think about history outside the Scriptures. Augustine, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, 
Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones. It's fascinating because Revelation chapter 7 tells us that before the throne of Christ, right now and before the throne of Christ, once He returns and the new heavens and the new earth is established, there is a vast multitude of saints that no one can count. And among those saints worshiping the Lord with their white garments are many heroes that we have no clue who they are. We never heard their names. We call them unsung heroes. Unsung heroes. And the Bible is filled with unsung heroes. Some some of those were very under other more famous heroes. And today we have the honor of meeting one of these unsung heroes. And I can tell you that Paul would point to this man and say, Here is a hero of the faith that you should imitate. So today we start learning about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. I don't know any Christian who has named their son after this man. Do you know any Christian named after Epaphroditus? And yet, my prayer is as we start meeting this man, that he would affect us and infect us with this passion and zeal for Christ. He is a living replica of what it means to be a Christian. So, as we come to Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 19, you can see in your Bibles, starting verse 19, this new paragraph is actually flowing from the context of the book. And, and here, starting verse 19, we, we start beholding the complexity of Paul's ministry. Paul's life and ministry was very complex. So, first of all, we see the complexity of his co-workers. Paul was not a lone ranger. He had a bunch of men and women serving with him. So, right here in Philippians chapter 2, we can get a glimpse by seeing Timothy. I'm going to send Timothy. I'm sending Epaphroditus now. And they're all co-workers of Paul. So, when you read the New Testament, you see how many co-workers Paul has around him. Because he knows that the Christian life must be lived in community. But we don't see only the complexity of Paul's ministry, but the complexity of his relationship with certain churches. And especially, and in particular, with the church in Philippi. It's a very complex relationship, a very complex partnership. And we get a glimpse by watching what's happening here in chapter 2. So here, let me try to show you what's taking place. We saw that a long time ago when we first started studying Philippians. It's good for us to refresh our minds. So somehow the Philippians heard that Paul was in prison. We don't know where. Was it Rome? Was it Ephesus? Was it Caesarea? We have no idea. But Paul was in prison. In chains. Remember, step two. The church heard that Paul is in prison. And remember that the prison system under the Roman Empire was not like you can just go to prison. 
sit down, have a warm shower, eat some food, watch some TV. I have talked to people on the streets that they say in the winter they like to be arrested. Because at least they have a warm place to be. They can watch TV. They have food to eat. That was not the case in the Roman Empire. You need people to keep you alive. The government is not going to provide for you. There is a reason why you're in prison. And Paul and the church in Philippi, they are in a partnership. Partnership in the gospel. So as soon as they hear that Paul is in prison, they decide to do what? Alright, we have this partnership, so we need to help Paul. So they decide to send an offering. Paul needs money. Paul needs fellowship. Paul needs someone to help him. So they gather some men in the church and send to Paul. And here we just hear about Epaphroditus. So they send him to deliver the gift to Paul. And stay with Paul for some time, serving Paul in whatever needs Paul has. Probably on the way to Paul, we don't know if he was going to Rome, if he was going to Ephesus, if he was going to Caesarea, but on the way, Epaphroditus gets really sick, very ill. And in those days, there were no antibiotics. Was, you get an infection, most surely you will die. It gets very sick. And since they are bringing money, and as you read the New Testament, often when they were collecting money and taking money from one church to another church, was not just one individual. It would be a group of men taking money to that church. So, most surely Epaphroditus is not by himself. He has other people with him taking the gift. And on the way, probably someone, once realized that Epaphroditus was really sick and could die any moment, one of them probably returns to Philippi to tell the church what's taking place. And that maybe there will be a delay, we don't know, or maybe they just tell somebody else that's coming on the way back to Philippi, and they tell them to inform someone in Philippi. So somehow, the Philippians heard about Epaphroditus' illness. And now the church hears that this beloved church member who is sacrificing everything to go serve Paul is really sick, really ill, and now the church is distressed. What if he dies? Imagine a dear member of our church leaving for a missions trip and we find out that this person is extremely ill in a very poor place in Asia. And we all will be distressed. And no communication. It's not like we can call and see how he's doing and text and say, Hey, how are you? No, we have no idea what's going on. Is he alive? Next, we find out that Epaphroditus becomes distressed because he heard that the church is distressed. Oh, no. Now they're all concerned about me. Next step, Paul decides that Epaphroditus' service has been accomplished. We don't know for how long he stayed with Paul, but Paul now says, Hey, your duties have been fulfilled, you're discharged. You better go home, boy. So Paul sends Epaphroditus back. But it's interesting, because when Epaphroditus first comes to Paul, 
he also tells Paul what's happening in the church. He's telling Paul, he's spending time with Paul, and he tells Paul what's happening with the church, and he mentions the, the sad division, and, and there's some members arguing, and there's a crack in the unity of the church. So Paul writes a letter, and he gives to Epaphroditus. He says, all right, it's time to go home. I have Timothy here now with me. You go back home and bring this letter. And that's the letter that we have. And finally, we hear through the letter that Paul is sending Timothy soon with new reports about his trial. Paul expects Timothy to come back with a good report about the church. And then Paul hopes to go to Philippi soon. So that's the complexity of what's taking place in this relationship, in this partnership between Paul and this church. Are we good? We, we need this background information to, to help us understand what's taking place. And it's with this complexity of events, it's in this complex situation, that Paul, with the wisdom of God, uses this complex situation to point the Philippians to two fellow believers that will help them in their walk with Christ. Timothy and Epaphroditus. So, one scholar says, Thomas Reiner, he says, Unity. Remember, the church has a crack in the unity, something there is not smelling good. There's tension in the church. It says, unity is preserved when believers live like Jesus Christ. And they set the cause of the gospel over and above their private interests. Think about this. How many arguments and fights take place because we are not setting the gospel over and above that situation. Timothy and Epaphroditus are also set forward as men who were willing to live for the sake of the gospel. Unity comes not by prizing unity for its own sake. Unity comes when people live to spread the gospel of Christ. When believers imitate people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Okay, he says, divisions is spread when believers take their eyes off their mission and become embroiled in personal disputes. Isn't that truth? Paul, Christ Jesus, Timothy, and Epaphroditus function as models because they all lived for the glory of God and they spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul places in the complexity of his partners, in the complexity of the situation, he places these two men here as examples of what it means to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, by living in unity. That's what Paul is doing. So we saw before, and here's once again how this, these verses are structured. Verses 19 through 30. So first Paul tells why he's sending Timothy, but not right away. And then he explains why he's sending Epaphroditus right away. And these two men, they are the, the foundation of the pattern of life that Paul wants them to imitate. 
So today we start meeting, and it's a joy. I have been spending a lot of time with Epaphroditus, I have been loving this man, and it's a great privilege to present him to you all. He is a living replica of Jesus Christ. He has the mind of Christ, and we see that by how Paul, the words that Paul uses for Epaphroditus are resembling the words of Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, here's the outline for today and the next Lord's Day. We're not going to have time to look at these verses in one Sunday. So we're going to be looking who Paul is sending, and that's Epaphroditus, verse 25. And then why Paul is sending Epaphroditus, verses 26 through 28. Then Paul tells them how to receive Epaphroditus, verse 29. And then why they must receive Epaphroditus in such manner, verse, verse 30. So let's start our journey here. Hope you have your Bibles open. Verse 25, Paul says, here's the ESV. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And if you were in church that morning, when this letter was being read in Greek, the first three words here would have caught your attention. That's very important. Here's why. The word, have thought, actually would be better translated as, I have counted. Because it's the same Greek word used in chapter 2, verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's the same word used in chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And now, and now Paul says, I have counted it necessary. In the context of these three verses, it is the interest of others. I have counted others above myself. And the same with the word necessary. The only other place where Paul used the word necessary is when he says, Hey, I would rather die and be with Christ. But it's more necessary on your account that I stay alive. So, as soon as Paul says, I have counted it necessary. If you are aware, you know that Paul is setting himself as an example of, actually, I would love to have Epaphroditus with me. He's my brother. My fellow worker. My fellow soldier. But I have counted others more important than myself, and I have counted it necessary on your account to send him back to you. So right here you can see Paul setting himself as an example of a man who lives what he preaches. So he says, I have thought it necessary to send a prophetess to you. And also you can see that if there was any any feeling of being upset with Epaphroditus coming back earlier than they were expecting? If there was any question, why is he back already? Paul is saying, it's all on me. I have counted necessary to send him back to you. And now we see his name. Here is who Paul is sending. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditos. That's his name. The main root there, Aphrodite. The goddess, the Greek goddess of love, sensuality, Aphrodite, as we say. 
And then the last part is the masculine. Epaphroditos. That's his name. And if you know Greek and Roman mythology, you know that Aphrodite is Venus in Roman mythology. And that's very important. Because a lot of people are going to say, oh, do you see his parents honored Aphrodite by giving his name? And actually, there's something more into this. Because when you think about Venus... Aeneas, or Aeneas, was the son of Aphrodite or Venus. And, this, and it's from this son here of Venus that the Romans trace the deity of Julius Caesar to Troy. That's why Venus became the major goddess of the Caesars. And then... Through Julius Caesar, they built a temple to Venus or Aphrodite. So they would trace the deity, Caesar, the son of God. They would trace the, the deity of Caesar back to Aeneas or Aeneas, that is the son of Venus, Aphrodite. So, most probably, he was dedicated to Venus because... He was actually being dedicated to Caesar, since Venus or Aphrodite was the ultimate mother of Caesar. And that makes sense because Philippi was a little Rome, and they loved Caesar, and they boasted about their Roman citizenship. And here we see this man who was, by his parents, named after the goddess whom brought Caesar into the throne. Now he has been conquered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his allegiance has changed. He's no longer dedicated to Venus, Caesar, but to Christ Jesus. That's what's taking place here. And it's interesting to note also that Christians did not receive a new name at their baptism. Amen? Some of you who were baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, and that's not a Christian baptism, you receive a new name. If there was one man that should have received a new name, there was Epaphroditus. And he didn't get a new name. Do you know why? Because they know that you are a Christian. Not because you possess a Christian name. Not because you possess a baptism in the church. Not because you possess a, a membership in a church, in a local church. You are a Christian because Christ possesses you and you possess Christ. And you have a living union with Christ. And your life resembles Christ. All those things are important. Baptism, membership... Christian parents, but that doesn't make you a Christian. It's union with Christ. And this man has union with Christ. So, Paul says, I had thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Let me see if I... Yeah. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, 
your minister to my need. And now we have this window, and we can see as if Paul is just opening his heart. And we see, we can behold the great affection that Paul had in his heart. Here is the same man that in a few verses he's going to call false teachers what? Dogs. Here's the same man that can call anathema, be cursed, false teachers. And yet, so kind, so gentle, so affectionate towards those who serve the gospel. In a warm and emphatic commendation, the apostle employs five terms to express his loving and grateful regard for Epaphroditus. There is like a crescendo of accolades. My brother, my fellow worker, my soldier, your apostle, your minister. I don't know, I I couldn't find any other person in the New Testament whom Paul brings such accolade like this one here. And if you find, please bring to my mind. I would love to see, but I could not find anyone in the New Testament that in one shot gets all these beautiful accolades. And notice, you can see in your Bibles there, in verse 25, the first three terms is in relation to Paul. My brother, my fellow laborer, my fellow soldier. And then the other two is connected to the church. Your apostle, your messenger, and your minister. That's how Paul divides here. So, let's see how Paul describes Epaphroditus in relation to himself. And the first thing that he says is, My what? Adelphos, my brother. My brother. I have two brothers in Brazil. What makes us brothers? Why are we brothers? Think about this. What makes one a brother of someone else? Maternity. Maternity. Blood relationship. It's interesting throughout these scriptures. The primary meaning of a brother, the primary meaning of a brother is the one who comes from the same womb. That's the the picture of the word behind. Is one who comes from the same womb, uterus, same mom. But as you study the, the scriptures, starting the Old Testament, you start noticing that there are people who are not part of the same family or even the same clan, and yet they're called brothers. Because you start to notice a union between people by faith. And this is a massive theological theme, the theme of the seed. That starts with Eve. The seed. And the seed implies a dynasty. You have Abraham. His seed. You have David. His dynasty. And just to summarize all things here. As Paul describes. All those who believe in Jesus Christ. Become part of this dynasty. This family that belongs to God. Children of God, adopted into his family. So Paul sees Epaphroditus as his brother. 
We were conceived in the same womb of mercy, in the same uterus of grace, and we are brothers. If you look at my brothers and myself, you will see many similarities. Because one aspect of brotherhood is similarities, right? That's how the word is also used. Job says that he's a brother of jackals. Why? Miserable lifestyle. Scavengers. That's how Job feels like. So he says, I'm a brother of jackals. Similarity. And as Paul is beholding Epaphroditus, he sees someone who has the similarities of a brother. Here's a man who shares the same love for Christ. Here's a man who shares the same love for the church as I do. That's why Paul calls him my brother. And there are two extremes we see in churches today. One extreme is, and I like Luther, Martin Luther's picture of extremes. He said, extreme is like a drunk man on a horse. When he falls to the right, do you know what he does? Alright, I'm not going to fall to the right again. So he puts all his body to the left. And guess what happens? He falls again. So that's what extremes are. It's never healthy. And we see two extremes in the church today. One is, everybody's a brother. Hey brother, don't even know the person's name. Hey brother, Brother, brother. Or it's a way of, since you don't remember the name, hey brother, how are you? Right? And it has no affection whatsoever. And then you have the other extreme is, all right, we cannot be doing that. That's embarrassing. All this brother language, sister language, that's cultish language. And then you have churches where nobody uses the terminology of brother and sister. And many times, because there is no affection to call one another brother or sister. But the New Testament shows us that the expression brother or sister is a beautiful declaration of the gospel. When we call each other brother or sister, we are declaring that by God's grace, we have been transferred from the family of Adam. We were under the paternity of Adam, the paternity of Satan. And in the gospel, we have been transferred into the family of God and the paternity of God the Father. That's the gospel. The gospel is the wonderful news that we have a new father and therefore we have a new uh, family. Family. And it's kind of difficult for us to picture this reality where we live because we are so spoiled we have so much comfort that we don't understand this very much but so many places in the world right now right now today people are coming to church carrying their suitcases do you know why because their parents their siblings hate them because they became christians and they have no family whatsoever. So they come to their baptisms. Do you know how? With a bag and a suitcase. I have no longer a home. Now the church is my home. You are my brother. You are my sister. I have no longer anyone to care for me. So sometimes persecution 
caused us to appreciate some things in the Bible that we have no ability to understand because we are so immersed in comfort, easy life. So Paul says, my brother, not a brother, my brother, we are bound together. There is a profound fraternal affection between them. There is so much love between these two that Paul says that if he had died, Paul would have drowned in sorrows. That's how much Paul loved this man. There are many people dying. And we are not drowning in sorrows. And there are some people in the church who will die and you will be very sad. But takes a deep relationship for one to die and you be drowned in sorrows. And when God shows mercy to that brother, you say, I receive mercy through his mercy. That's how united we are. But we, bought, we better remember that there was a time in Paul's life when this was not real. There was a time in Paul's life that he hated Gentiles. That's very important, brothers and sisters. Here's the gospel. There was a time in Paul's life that if you said, Hey, here, I want you to meet my friend, Epaphroditus. Do you know what Paul would do? God forbid! And he would spit on the floor. I'm disgusted that you'd even try to present this man to me. A Gentile dog. No, thank you. There was a time in Paul's life that he said, Paul, I want you to come over to my house and you're going to have a meal and I'm going to present you a friend of mine, Epaphroditus. Paul said, are you joking? Are you kidding me? What an offensive joke that is. Do you think I'm going to sit down with this man? Paul now calls him my brother. My brother. That's what the cross does. The cross unites people who are apart and separate as far as as the east is from the west, the cross brings together. And that's what we see right here. When Paul understood the gospel, when Paul comprehended the gospel, he realized that apart from Jesus Christ, he stood unclean, just like any other Gentile. When Paul comprehended the gospel... When Paul understood the gospel, he realized that apart from Jesus Christ, he was as unclean as any other Gentile. He understood that he would stand before God naked, unclean, and as guilty as any other Gentile. And only by casting himself at the feet of Christ and say, cover me, cover me with your garments of righteousness that I can be righteous. Only then he could realize what salvation is, what true membership in the family of God is. Apart from Christ, we stand as children of the devil, resembling Satan in our actions. And the same gospel brought Epaphroditus also to the floor. The same gospel humbled Epaphroditus. So now he gives himself to Christ. 
And now Christ unites these two. As if He throws a garment upon the two, uniting them as one. One in Christ Jesus. And now Paul hears the name Epaphroditus, and instead of spitting on the floor and saying, what a dog, Paul's heart beats with joy. Epaphroditus, my brother, my brother, we are bound together, and nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us. We have an inheritance together. And that's what the gospel does, brothers and sisters. And that's what the gospel has done in so many of our lives here. And that's why I can look at some of you and say, My brother, my sister, you are much closer to me. You know me much better than my earthly brothers. Paul also calls him my fellow worker. Look at that. My brother and my fellow worker. Sum ergos. Sum ergos. The sum together or co-worker. That's the prefix there. And then ergos related to work, fighting, laboring hard. It's the completely opposite of laziness, slothfulness, relaxation. A fellow worker is one who labors and fights together with you, forcefully, purposefully, energetically. And that's how Paul sees this man. He says, my fellow worker. It's as if the two of them have been now placed together by the yoke of the gospel, and these two oxen work hard for the gospel. My fellow worker. And we know that because what a labor that was for Epaphroditus to leave Philippi and journey all the way to Paul, sick, almost dying, to serve him. Great labor, great work. And that's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. You were saved to serve. It might surprise some of us because we were taught that we were saved to be entertained. You are not saved to be entertained. You are saved to serve. And God has given you gifts. Christ died so that you might have some gifts to serve His people. Look what Paul says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away, keep away, from any brother, look at that, any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So sometimes you can be a brother and instead not be a fellow worker. Paul said, uh 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 uh, let this not be true in your life. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we are not idle, we are not lazy when we were with you. With toil and labor, we work night and day. And that applies, brothers and sisters, to our homes, to our families, 
and to the household of God. Amen? It's not like this just applies to your house. This applies also much more in the household of God. And we have been seeing an entire culture, an entire generation of people who think that they don't need to work and they can receive from other people. I deserve. Are you not going to work? No. And you better give me education, give me food, give me housing. Paul says, keep away from these people. Stay away from this type of people who call themselves Christians and yet are lazy. They should be working. They could be working. Resembling Christ works. The triune God who is always working. And the same applies to the church. So many people, so many people, they go to church and they do nothing. Nothing. And yet, it's just give me, give me, give me. And then, if they don't get what they wanted, they're going to complain. They don't do anything, and yet, they love complaining. Oh, the sermon was too long. The sermon was too harsh. I don't like the songs. Too much prayer. What have you done? And yet, they want to sit down and be blessed. Paul says, he continues, For even when we were with you, we would, not, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Hmm. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, laziness. Not busy at work, but what? Busy bodies. Because when you're laboring hard, when you're working hard, when you're serving Christ, let me tell you, you don't have time to be busybody. The great majority of the problems in the church, they rise from busybody people who are not laboring. It's not people who you look around and say, yes, He's yoked with me. We serve together, working hard. So Paul tells the church to keep away from people who avoid the hard work. And notice, that's very important. Because we tend to think about church discipline, excommunication for heresy, false teaching, sexual immorality. How about those members in the church who are lazy? Those members in the church who don't serve. Paul says, admonish them. And if they don't repent, keep them away from the congregation. Because they are a perversion of the gospel. So, Epaphroditus, my fellow worker, a true man of God who is always laboring hard in the church, outside the church for the glory of God, and I praise the Lord that I have many co-workers, fellow workers in this church. Working hard for the advancement of the gospel. And the Christian life requires hard work, brothers and sisters. Studying the scriptures is not easy. You don't get things by osmosis. Right? 
Singing in a way that honors Christ requires work. Avoiding distraction, paying attention to what you're singing. Praying in a way that honors Christ requires work. It's so easy to get distracted. Laboring hard, studying, reading, praying, evangelizing, serving one another, opening your homes. It's not easy to open your homes. Right? Especially when you have a small home and you want to invite a big family. But do you think the gospel gives you excuses? Oh yeah, that's going to be too hard for you, so don't do that. Hard laboring on behalf of the gospel. Blessing one another with our labors. Paul continues. My brother, my fellow worker, and now he says my fellow soldier. Paul describes him as his fellow soldier. Sustratiotes. Comrade in arms. Those who devote themselves to the service of the gospel. It's a term of honor. Another lexicon says, one who serves in arduous tasks or undergoes severe experiences together with someone else. One who struggles along with. One who works arduously along with a fellow struggler. Because you remember, a soldier in the Roman army was one who place his shoulder right by you and he would wrestle the enemy together. They would sweat blood together. So Paul implies that Epaphroditus is not simply a soldier because he wears a uniform or possesses a title, but because he possesses the nature of a trooper. This man, Epaphroditus, he has the the holy recklessness towards the gospel. He has the holy self-abandonment that it is necessary for a good soldier. The one who stops caring so much about his self-preservation but for advancement of the cause he's fighting for. Amen? This man is willing to throw his body on top of the grenade in order for the gospel to keep moving on. That's why Paul says he almost died. He almost died, but he kept pressing on. A true soldier is the one who, when he hears the enemy marching, his blood pumps through his veins in excitement to fight for the Lord. He's not the first one to run away in fear and hide at home. No, he's running to the battlefield with his fellow soldiers. As a faithful fellow soldier, Epaphroditus fought hard. He risked his own life to advance the gospel and serve others. That's the longing of any church leader. To have the members of his church that he can look at them. My brother, my sister, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Because some people, they have the affection. Some people, they work hard. But when you hear the sound of the enemy, when you see a threat, they cannot be called a fellow soldier. They run to save their lives. 
So let this be said of all of us. While you are alive and when you die, my fellow soldier. Amen. What an honor to say, my fellow soldier. He fought. We strive side by side for the gospel. Be the type of men and women who bear your brothers and sisters' burdens. That's Galatians. That's military language. Bear each other's burden. Bear each other's burden. Carry one another on your shoulder. When one was weak, hurt. Be the type of Christian who come alongside to help your church members to put on the full armor. The full armor, Ephesians chapter 6, is not something to do simply at home, individualistically. It's a call to the church, the whole church. And if you saw how soldiers would get ready, one would help each other as they're putting their armor. Be the type of fellow soldier who even when he's tired, overwhelmed, keep pressing on by gathering with the church. A lot of our wrestling, a lot of our battling, a lot of our fighting is done when we are gathered together in prayer. That's what the Bible tells us. And that's the reality. It's when we are gathered together, praying together as a church, that's when we are striving side by side. Oh, there are other ways for sure. I think the prayer time is when you truly show faith. Because it's a very strange thing for us to gather together to pray. It's madness. Who are you talking to? Do you think there is any power in just gathering together a bunch of people to pray? And yet, by faith, we know that's one of the primary means that God uses to strengthen His church. To keep moving. There is a, a band of brothers and sisters fighting together, striving side by side, and helping each other to put on the four armor, bearing each other's burden. But some of those who have been enlisted by Christ are missing. So sometimes, there we are, as a church, assembled to worship. Assemble to worship in prayer. And you look around. Where is that fellow soldier? Oh, I was too tired to go. Are we all tired? Fighting together. Conquering together sinful vices. Conquering fears together. Watching the Lord of hosts give victories in different areas of our lives. Suffering together. Bear each other's burdens together. That's the mark of a true fellow soldier. This is the completely opposite of showing up to church. I just show up. What have you been doing for the church? I just show up. <laughs> and know that Paul doesn't say, or my brother, or 
my fellow worker or my fellow soldier. And, and, and. Because the Bible doesn't give us the option. I'm just going to be a good brother, okay? I don't like to work very hard and I hate risking my life, so I'm going to be a good brother. And others is, I love the battle. I hate showing affection. No, it's the three together. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. And here, Paul moves to give the reference to Epaphroditus in his church. And he says, your messenger, your messenger. The word here is apostolos, where we get apostle. But you remember that the word apostle could be used as an official, uh, a technical term, like the twelve apostles or Paul. And also could be used in a not technical form, as one, a messenger. Envoy, someone who is sent with a message. Very similar to the word deacon, diakonos. Diakonos could be used in a general sense. Everyone is a deacon, a servant, and could be used also in a technical, in a formal way for a church office. The same with elders. Presbyteros could be used for older men and could be used for the office. Here, it's clear that Paul is not using as an office, as the technical form of an apostle like Paul. He's not a, an apostle of Christ. He's an apostle of the church there. He's a messenger. He was sent to Paul with gifts to him. Now look, it says, Epaphroditus, your messenger. That's very important, brothers and sisters, because Epaphroditus was sent by a local church. Why is that important? Because he was recognized by the church as one faithful to go, mature to go, and he was sent by the church. We have so many people who suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm going to do some mission trip. Then you ask, who, is your church involved with that? Oh, they don't need to be involved with that. There is absolutely no freelancer in the New Testament. Everybody who is sent is sent by a church, connected to a local church. The support of the church. So he says, your messenger. And also he also says that he is your minister to my need. Your minister. The Greek word leitugos here, leitugos, Fascinating, the Greek version of the Old Testament almost exclusively is used for priests and when they're serving the temple. And now, and now Paul is applying to Christians. Because now our, our, our service to the Lord is priestly service. A kingdom of priests. And it's fascinating to, to see here because here's this man doing what's seemingly menial, dull, ignoble, ordinary not glamorous at all. Just a man with a bag of money going to help another man doing manual service, whatever. And yet, Paul says, that's, that's a priestly service. That's just like a priest ministering the temple in the tabernacle. That's what Paul says about this man here. He says, your minister 
to my needs. And you see how membership in the church, this one member, he represents the whole church. Paul is going to say, you, you all could not come in. Could not come to me. Yet he came and he represented the entire body. Your membership in a local church is very important. And that's why sometimes we talk to some of our members and we say, Hey, be careful with what you're posting on Facebook. Because you as a member of this church, you represent our church. That's why we are careful with membership. Because a member here, he represents the body. So Paul sees Epaphroditus as a member of this whole body serving him. So in this one verse, verse 25, we behold the power of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Here is a man who before Christ was serving his idols, Epaphroditus, serving his false gods. And yet, when Christ came and conquered him, there was a massive transformation, a new life. Think about the power of the gospel as we put Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus together. Paul, a purebred, a Jew of the Jews. Timothy, a mixed breed, a mutt, part Jew, part Gentile. And now you have Epaphroditus, a full Gentile. And yet these three love each other so much, they are all together in a partnership in the gospel. That's what Christ does. Takes us from our selfish kingdoms, from the kingdom of darkness here and there, and He places us in His marvelous kingdom. Providing a partnership, a brotherhood, covenantal relationship that we could never imagine before. Now, Paul, when he hears the name Epaphroditus, no longer... Spitting on the floor. Oh no. Now he hears this name. And he can just see the smile on his face. Epaphroditus, my brother. My brother. We were conceived in the same womb of mercy. We resemble each other. Our love for Christ, our desire to serve the church. And that's what we see clearly in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, Colossians 1.21, And as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, listen to this. And you, that's plural, that's not singular, you yourself, you all who were, who were once alienated, alienated. You didn't belong to the family of God. You're actually an alien to the family of God. Hostile. Hostile. You're not a fellow soldier. 
They didn't belong to the army of Christ. They were actually against Christ. You all who were once alienated and hostile in mind, look at that, doing evil deeds. We are not co-laborers, co-workers in the gospel. We are actually laboring, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, and that's the blood, in order to present you all holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. The King of kings ennobled us by shedding His blood for us. And by His blood He created a band of brothers who embraced the privilege of suffering in His cause and ser- serving with, with and for each other. And as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember, that's, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, bring to mind this, that the Lord's Supper is a meal. You're representing a meal that we are partaking together as a church, as a family. It's a family meal. Amen? It's a family meal. And you're seating. In ancient times, you'd not have a meal with someone who you didn't have fellowship with. Meals were very important to establish the bounds of a relationship. And that's what the, the Lord's Supper is. is reminding us, reminding us that because of Christ, we who were alienated, now we are brought near together. And we sit together at the table and we fellowship with one another and you're proclaiming the beauty of the gospel that united us in Christ. And I'm so thankful for being united to you. And that's what we do. Don't, do, don't, do, don't take lightly. Sometimes it's easy to partake of the Lord's Supper lightly. But remember, remember the body broken, the blood shed, so that you and I would become one. One. Lord, we come before You with thankful hearts, humble hearts, eager hearts. Thank for Your grace in our lives. Thank for rescuing us from Adam's family. Satan's family. Thank you for rescuing us from his slavery to evil, performing evil deeds. Thank you for rescuing us from Satan's army. And now we are fellow soldiers in the kingdom of Christ. It's all your grace, it's all your mercy, and that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. That by your body, by your blood, you have made us one for your glory. So we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.